You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Stephen No, who is a local lawyer and community advocate. Uh, Stephen, thanks for joining. Can you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Super thrilled to be here. Uh, my name is Stephen No. I'm currently a lawyer at a uh, electric car company here in Vancouver, but outside of work, I do a lot of community advocacy work through, uh, I was the past president of the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. I'm on the Board of Governors for the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, the largest affinity bar in the United States. Of course, everything I'm saying is my own personal views. Uh, and on top of that, I'm also the advocacy chair for the Vietnamese Professionals Association of BC. So a lot of associations, but the underlying message is I'm here to help. Um, you know, Both my parents were immigrants, refugees from abroad. And when they came to Vancouver, where I was born, like they didn't have much of a voice. But now that I have this, I suppose, privileged position, having gone to law school, having worked at the big law firms, having to understand policy, I want to help. I want to contribute. I want to help uh, this generation and future generations. So that's really my why. Amazing. And I mean, you're, you're so multifaceted, right? There's so many different types of advocacy that you do. What drives you to do your advocacy work? Absolutely. I think one of the big drivers is that I am a recent-ish father, I guess two and a half, almost two and a half years old daughter. And so I'm just seeing what can I do during my limited time to, to help, right? I mean, especially in this point of our society, there's so much hate out there. You know, we saw during the pandemic, the rise of anti-Asian hate at the time of this podcast recording, seeing a rise in like anti-Semitism, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian. So there's so much uh, tension in society. And so what can I do during this limited period of time to be a voice, to provide support, to to the extent I can influence policy to make this world much more equitable. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, like I'm born in Vancouver. I love the city. Like today is absolutely gorgeous, like mm -hmm. sunny, beautiful. And I see, you know, this, the potential for this community, this city, this country, and I want to contribute and help. And so that's really why. Right. And you've talked about sort of making the world a better place for, for your kid, right? What was it like for you growing up here? Yeah, really great question. So I was born and raised in Vancouver. And, you know, part of it when I was growing up is that I never feel like I fully belonged in the sense where, uh, you know, typical story where, you know, you bring the food from home to school and like, oh, what is this fried rice thing? Like, what is this? Why aren't you eating sandwiches and like Lunchables? And so it got to the point where I actually told my mom, hey, stop bringing me lunch. Like, just buy me these like, you know, these, like pizza pockets or things that are obviously processed food. And I think there was a bit of, you know, shock, right? Because my mom spent all this time cooking these noodles and these rices and I'm just bringing some packaged food from Superstore not not picking Superstore but like just as an example and you know I didn't have the Dorito chips and things like that so definitely growing up there was a sense of otherness mm -hmm. uh, you know I kind of kept it inside kind of like you know this is what it's like to be in society and I don't get me wrong I blend it in right I'm fully Canadian I could speak a little bit of French I sing the anthem I play a little bit of hockey terribly by the way uh, but I, I could play both sides but there was this gnawing feeling that as I was growing up even throughout high school university you know why am I hiding this identity of mine 
Right? I'm part Vietnamese, part Chinese. I should be a little more proud about that, understand that. And so that's really the journey. It's a bit of an arc, to be honest. <laughs> right, absolutely. And I mean, I, I can sort of relate to that in some sense as being a trans person and having to hide that as a kid and then figuring out who I was and trying to learn to be proud of it as an adult. So um, there's a, always these overlaps in a lot of our episodes, these intersections. And uh, it's interesting to learn about your history, your past. And I'm glad that you, it sounds like you're in a better place now of being able to uh, accept your heritage and, and be proud of it, right? Absolutely. I think there's like a really an inflection point right now in history, right? I think in the last, honestly, in the last two, three years, there's been a rise in awareness. If you look at, frankly, now being Asian is now cool, right? Like you have one of the top pop bands in the world is BTS. It's a Korean pop band, like mm. Blackpink, another pop band. Like they have, they're topping the charts. Simu Liu in like a Marvel movie. Like you're seeing the first Chinese Canadian mayor of, 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 of Vancouver being Asian. Also in Toronto, the first Chinese Canadian mayor of Toronto, Olivia Chow, also being Asian. So there's this new, I feel like there's an inflection point where we have people in different positions of society and how can we help right we have doctors we have lawyers we have business folks and i think that we're at this point where we could all come together as a community and help support each other and i think the big part of this is not saying you know us versus them but how can we support all of us how do we provide those voices for those who might not have a voice right so it's not just this subset but how do can we contribute to society as a whole right and, and it also seems like racism uh as it relates to different races it, it is presented in a different way, right? Like when I was growing up, I know that one of the common tropes was all Asian people are good at math, right? Which is, I mean, more of a positive than you might hear about other people, but it is still this, uh, I guess, assumption that people have about a specific race. Can, is that something that you've experienced? And, and can you talk about maybe the differences between Asian racism and, and racism as it's directed towards others? Absolutely. I think that's a really good question, right? I think the, it, the, the deeper the deeper message here is that there's this notion that also like all Asians are the same, you know, like you're all good at math, you all play piano. But if we look at the word Asian itself, that's over 2.5 billion people in mm -hmm. the world, right? You're looking at India, you're looking at China, you're looking at Japan, Korea, Vietnam. These are all completely different countries. Mm -hmm. And so for myself, being mixed identity with my dad being Vietnamese and Chinese, my mom Chinese, if you look into the history, the two countries actually hate each other. Like Vietnam was a colony of China for a thousand years and they repelled the Chinese from the country. And so there's actually inherent tensions behind those two countries that I actually didn't realize until I actually went to visit. And so you could see that there are differences. And even with Japan and Korea and other places, I think at the end of the day, we're trying to find a society and a place where people feel seen. Right. People feel heard. People feel honestly loved and cared about. And I think when we when we lose sight of that, we end up with these tensions to society. And I think that's the you know, maybe the more enlightened or higher ground, whatever you want to say it. But I, I see you. I want to create this place of belonging. And then maybe, you know, maybe there, there there's many ways of accomplishing this. Right. And but I think that underlying message of kindness, of love, of support, that is what we're all seeking for and that's why we have like podcasts like these and other groups to how do we provide a voice how do we make you feel comforted how do you find a place of safety so that we can all rise up and help each other out mm -hmm. and uh, one of the ways that you discovered that this um, aspect of all Asian people being treated the same in, in some ways was in the process of filing a complaint with the Vancouver Police Department, right? My understanding is that you went to try to fill out one of the forms that they had and found out it's only available in Chinese, as if all Asian people 
speak or, or uh, are able to write in, in Chinese. Can you explain what happened there and, and uh, what's come of it? 100%. So, I mean, during the, the, the peak of the pandemic, and it's still, you know, there was a rise in, we all know this, right? A rise in hate crimes, people being attacked. And essentially what happened was that I was also a victim of a hate incident where someone called me a racial slur twice and threw garbage at me. Uh, and during the news, you see a lot of reports from the media and from government saying, hey, you must report hate crimes, you must report it. I'm like, okay, I will report it because, mm-hmm. okay, garbage was thrown in my face. I wasn't injured, but, you know, I'm going to report it. But the sense is when I actually tried to report it, first I called the poli- the phone lines and no one picked up the phone line. Oh. Uh, so that's the first issue. So no one picked up the non-emergency line because... I don't think it was a 911 call. I think I don't want to clock up the phone line. So no one picked up the phone line. And second, well, if no one's picking up the phone line for like 30 minutes, let me go look online. And like you said earlier, the only forms available were in Chinese. And that just like opened my eyes on, wait a second, are you saying that only those who could read and write Chinese are victims of hate crimes? Absolutely not. I was born in this country. And what about those who don't read or write Chinese? What about those who speak other languages like mm-hmm. Japanese, Korean, Philippine, like Tagalog, sorry. Uh, and so... And they didn't I, even have one in English, did they? They Also, they didn't have one in English. There's like no form in English either, right? Mm. Which boggles your mind. Like, what if you are there as a supporter, as an ally? You can't even help someone report it in English. And so that just exposed my... my I saw a huge problem, and, and I think it's an easily fixable problem. We need to make hate crime reporting more accessible. Have it in multiple languages in different forms. On phone, via text, via email, via forms, whatever the case is. And so through that work, I, I advocated, I spoke up, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, we spoke to the Vancouver Police Department and luckily, you know, within two months, they have forms now in 13 languages oh. and their website is now in 100 languages. And so I think it's, it's just a matter of like using my voice and understanding how can I navigate the system? How can I present it in a way that is, is presentable for all parties? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where the magic lies. Thank you. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm, congratulations on being able to affect that change. That's huge. Absolutely. And I, I want to thank the VPD for, you know, to the I know it's not the most, uh, probably not a popular comment, especially on a social justice podcast, <laughs> right? But I do say that they did listen, right? They did, mm-hmm. they did understand. And, and I think part of the skill of being a lawyer is like, how do you present in a way that meets like, what are their whys? What is my why? And present it in a way. And so I'm, I'm blessed to have that training to be able to present in a really clear, concise manner with PowerPoint presentations, statistics, citing statutes, things like that. And so that's, you know, because of those efforts, uh, sadly, or in a good way, now that there is, they are the leading edge, right? They're the leading city who's doing this. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of those statistics, you've talked also about how you're skeptical of hate crime statistics. What, why is it that those statistics might not be accurate? Yeah, absolutely skeptical. I mean, first of all, hate crimes are underreported. And part of the reason why it's underreported is because the mechanisms to report are not there. And so, you know, there's stories of cities like in Victoria, if you're calling a non-emergency phone line, you're waiting for like many, many hours. Mm. And so I think the first issue to address is that reporting needs to be accurate, right? We need to have a way for people to report outside of a phone line. I think we're still stuck in the 1990s when you call and order pizza on a phone line. Like you you could do it on an app. Like if you go to Uber, you can order food in like minutes. Like you and I could get pizza delivered faster or like buy something on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so I think the reason why stats and I'm skeptical about statistics is that it's not accurate. It's fully not capturing exactly what's happening. And so the next question is like, how do we make it? Accessible. I think we have technology nowadays to make it so easily. It's just a widget that could capture 
uh, there's many ways of doing this, right? Even mm-hmm. websites. Let's talk about websites very specifically. I'm going very tech because my background is in technology. Yeah. We've done a technology uh, episode of this podcast too, actually. Absolutely. I mean, let, let's do it, right? If you go to a lot of government websites, like if you don't speak the language, English, there's a hard time to understand what's going on. But all that it takes is like a widget you add on the top right corner. It's actually a Google Translate widget. Like you do it in 100 languages. Huh. It takes you... 30 minutes, just give me access to your, like, just put a copy and paste of code, have a button on there, and it translates the entire pages mm-hmm. in different languages. And so we talk about access to justice. One way to make justice accessible is actually through language. And that's the first step. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I want to pivot a little bit because you, you are an advocate in so many different arenas. And one of the things that you've talked about is anxiety and depression within the legal profession. Yeah. And uh, you've, you've touched on the fact that you you do legal work and and uh, I, I don't know if we can talk about the brand that you work with but um, can you talk about what it's like to deal with anxiety and depression within the legal profession no I, I mean it's a fantastic pivot I'm, I'm glad we could capture it today I think the bigger story is that you know anxiety and in, in, in mental health is still very stigmatized I think it's still a little better than when this started but about five years ago uh, I was going through you know the usual track in the legal side where not the usual but like you know doing going to the top tier law school, working at like top tier law firms. And I even like went abroad to Asia to work at this big, like, you know, UK magic circle firm, which was a great experience, by the way. I'm not saying that was a bad experience. But I think what happened was that I was just chasing these goals, these titles, without really understanding who I am inside. And so during those moments, I was just really, you know, frustrated, right? Like I was, I was like, being stretched left and right and I just wasn't really following what really who I am and mm-hmm. so I got to the point where I got really low right I was going through a period of depression I was anxious like every single email started like giving me shivers in my body mm-hmm. and I'm like okay something's going like something is clearly wrong here right let me find out like what I can do to help myself and when I looked on you know the websites that are there out there it's about how do you identify anxiety and depression in other people but not in myself and not in ourselves and it was just so stigmatized. And so I'm like, you know, what? I think there's a better way here. I think there's a way to, to, to fix this. I'm sure there's other friends and lawyers who are going through the same. Mm-hmm. And so I started up a nonprofit called Beyond the A. It's called Beyond Anxiety. And just to have these talks, these discussions to really highlight the issue. And we actually now go into law schools and bring, you know, very quote-unquote successful lawyers to talk about their actual journey right because when I was going through law school you have this impression that everyone is perfect around you there's this like semblance that oh if you are suffering you are the others but the reality and the statistics show is that over 70 percent of law students are going through uh this this crisis right now and so we need to fix the systems and that starts from acknowledgement from talking about it from acknowledging that there is actual problem and so one of the things that we are really proud about is that we've actually, you know, because of our work in Canada and the United States, this is now a topic that's top of mind in all law schools. And there's studies about this. And that's part of why I started this, Beyond the A, to create this cultural movement, because I was personally having a hard time. And so what can I do to learn from my problems to help others as well, too? Right. And one of the other lawyers that we've had on this podcast is Kyla Lee, who's quite popular on TikTok and uh, various other social media platforms. And she's talked about how there's this uh, kind of culture within law that you have to be perfect, like you mentioned, and that you have to present this very serious image. And uh, it seems like both of you are sort of breaking out of the mold and, and sharing your experiences and talking about what it's actually like to be a lawyer. And I'm also wondering if there's 
an aspect of burnout because I hear everything that you do. I hear everything that Kyla does and I just go, I mean, that on top of all of the, the work that's required to be a lawyer just seems like a lot. And I also have heard that, especially early on in your career as a lawyer, there's massive amounts of hours that you have to put in. So do you think that burnout really contributes to anxiety and depression? 100%. I think the way that the system is set up, it, it does cultivate burnout, right? And I think that the first thing is acknowledging, hey, if you're going through a hard time, like talk to someone, talk to me, talk to someone who's outside of your law firm. Because when I was going through, I know exactly what that feels like. Right, you're at this top tier law firm. You're there to present this facade, and you can't let others know that I'm having a hard time, or else I'm not going to get work, and I'm not going to have these billable hours, and etc., etc., etc. But before we go down that spiral, like if you're having a tough time or something's going on, talk to someone. Talk to me. Talk to Kyla. Like Kyla, shout out to Kyla. She's fantastic. Right. Mm-hmm. I think there's this new wave, this new generation of leaders that are in the community. Like, hey, look at me look at us we are doing well in our careers our jobs but also we are very open authentic about who we are and what we're going through because we all go through that and the earlier we address it the better and like case in point one of my really good friends he's actually an advisor to be on the a he's a psychiatrist okay. and he shares stories about he works with lawyers as well too and there's so many stories that he shares with me it's just so heartbreaking where you know some of his clients who they've kept it inside for so long Right. And one of his clients, you know, I, I don't even know the name, but the story shows like he's in his early 40s and now he can't even get out of bed. Like it's wow. been to a point where he literally fell off a cliff and can't get out of bed because he's kept it inside for so long. Mm-hmm. So why do we wait until that point? Why don't we address it early on? Why don't we talk about it in the law school stage? Why don't we talk about it early part of your practice? At the end of the day, I get there's like jokes about lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, lawyers serve a role in society to protect the rule of law, right, to help you know, advocate to speak up for other marginalized communities. And so the more fulfilled lawyers and other professions are, the better we are as a society. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, when it comes to anxiety and depression, that presents itself in a variety of different ways, in, in different professions, in different aspects of our lives. And, and one of those aspects is fatherhood. We hear a lot about things like postpartum depression. We don't hear a lot about depression as it relates to fathers. What have you noticed about Uh, depression and anxiety as it relates to that absolutely i think whenever there are stressors in life right that does cause certain things to to may may fracture at the seams and so you know the pandemic is one clear example of that right Mm -hmm. and so you know even in fatherhood and the reason why this all ties together is that you know i i'm also a father as well uh and when i first started the the journey even before my daughter came out uh, of not myself, obviously, <laughs> from, from my wife. Uh, when I was reading the materials out there, there was really nothing written from the mother's, from the father's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. There's all, all these, these courses, these prenatal lessons, lessons all, all that, but there's really nothing from the dad's perspective. Like, what do you do when you're going through this process? I get that it's important to learn how to do diapers, breastfeeding, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But as a father, what do you do? And there's nothing, very little. The only thing that was out there was a book that was written 20 years ago. And so when I was going through this, I'm like, okay, there's clearly a gap as well. And so let me go interview 10 of my closest friends and ask them about their fatherhood journey. Mm -hmm. And so I learned so much uh, during that first season. Uh, It's called Two Dads, One Car. And just to realize, like, what is it like? You know, one of the most most touching episodes was, was a friend of mine who's, it's not released yet because he's actually going through a divorce right now. But we went deep into, whoa, what happened here, 
right? Like, tell me about this. Because at the end of the day, we want, when we talk about the family unit, we want both mothers and fathers to feel fulfilled and, and, and happy and where they are. So I think there is definitely a notion of stress, you know, some definitely some postpartum on both parents' side. And I think the more that we can help early on, the better. Right. Pivoting once again, yeah. uh, I want to talk about another thing that you brought up to me before we had this uh, or before we started this podcast, and that's some bills coming out of Florida. We have SB uh, 264, HB 1355. Can you talk about why or I guess what those are and why you oppose them? Yeah, for sure. So I think what's happening on the macro level and just to tie back to what we said earlier on, you know, we're at this stage in our society where there's a lot of fighting, right? There's a lot of infighting, a lot of tension. When you see a bit split between the have and the have nots, you're seeing these laws and rules being created that to address this gap. And so just to target in on those bills and why it matters, uh, essentially what these are are property right bills that are that have passed actually in Florida that take away property rights for those who come from certain backgrounds. So if you are, uh, if you have a Chinese passport, if you have an Iranian passport, if you have whatever these these countries listed, you actually cannot buy property. And what's the reason for that? It's it's flabbergasting. Right? Like what is going on here? And the reason for that is there is a huge rise in geopolitical tensions between. U.S. and China, Canada and China, mm-hmm. and the idea is to prevent Chinese citizens from buying property. Like, so they don't want them to have control in any way within the U.S. Absolutely, no control. And this is in Florida and also other states. Louisiana has this bill as well. It's being considered in Texas and other states as well. And you're seeing more and more of this happening. Let's do like a bit of a tie back here on history. And I'm a bit of a history buff and history nerd, so pardon me going down this path. But we all saw what happened during World War II. Right. Mm-hmm. The Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians actually had their properties taken away, top property taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing this repeat in history where this is starting to happen to the Chinese communities in the United States. And it's very if, if we don't speak up, it's likely gonna happen here in Canada as well, too. Mm-hmm. And so that's what these bills are. Essentially, if you hold a Chinese passport, you know, you can't buy property. And I get okay, wait, wait a second, like is that a bad thing? Uh, think about it, right? If you have a dual, even if you have a dual citizenship, China and, and the United States, even that is captured. And so I think we have to be cautious in, about these kind of laws because it just leads to this downstream effect of, of segregating community. And this is sadly happening. And I, I see a tsunami of issues coming up in the next few years. Right. And it's sort of singling out people of a specific ethnicity. It's not just saying, well, foreign ownership is, is a problem. It's causing prices to increase and so we're going to stop foreign ownership outright um it's this specific group of people from this specific country is being targeted and i think there's a difference between those two would you agree with that 100 percent. and i mean it's a touchy subject right because i think property and and inflation and property rights and this is a hot topic especially in today's generation even here in vancouver right but let's just look at the data let's look at the statistics if we actually look at the quote-unquote foreign ownership purchase rates a huge portion of these homes are actually being purchased by ourselves. It's mm. being purchased by Canadians or by Americans, right? Like, during, like it's a big portion of these additional homes are actually purchased by you and I. So like people getting a second property? Exactly. It's actually not even foreign ownership. It's actually people getting a second property. So let's dive into the numbers here, right? And so I think there's, it's easy from, you know, to, to look at it from us versus them kind of approach. But let's look into the actual numbers, right? It's driven by inflation rates. It's driven by low mortgage rates. And that's the deeper issue. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when we look at, you know, a society as a whole, let's think back about Canada, right? What is Canada? 
like Canada, we are, are a country of immigrants. We're a country of people who come from different societies, different countries, even my parents, other people's parents. We're here to contribute to a whole. And I think Canada is a kind country. It's a welcoming country. And I want to keep that for us for the future. Right. And you've talked about how this relates in some ways to what happened with Japanese people in World War Two. And we've talked about that on the war episode of this podcast as well, about how people were just stripped from, of their uh, right to have property. Things were taken away from them. They were pushed out of cities that they'd called home their whole lives. And I mean, that's that's awful. And I think looking back at it, we go, well, clearly that's wrong. So why is it that that's now happening again? Why is it that people are OK with that happening again? Yeah, there's a quote, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? Mm. And so I'm sure at that time, the populace thought that, yeah, this, is, this makes sense, you know? There might be Japanese spies in our population, so let's take away all the property rights and let's just, like, put them into camps. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the same thing is happening now, right? When you're like, oh, what do you, of course, right? Well, there's going to be a war coming up with China other countries. Let's go take away their property rights. Let's go put them into camps. And that's kind of where the issue lies, right? Is that if we don't have a voice to speak up to say, hey, this is actually wrong, right? I, I, I can bet you if we had the same level of influence now as lawyers back then, I don't think that would have happened. And so I think it's imperative on all of us as a society, as a community to say, hey, I don't think this is right. Like, we all saw what happened before. We shouldn't be shuffling. Obviously, you know, if someone is a, clearly a spy or a criminal, yeah, we have those mechanisms. But at the end of the day, we have to be, you know, take a bit of a pause and think, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And why are we doing this? Why are we othering? I think one of the podcast episodes previously talked about using food as a mechanism of diplomacy, right? Like, why do we enjoy, you know, dumplings or kimchi or pho, but we don't see the people behind it? And I think Canada as a whole, there's so much opportunity. We're a beautiful country, and I think there's a way to make it all work. And I think, I don't know if stripping property rights is the way to do it. Right. And when you talk about this concept of history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, it sounds as though we're sort of doomed to just keep on this same path and that uh, a lot of these racist mentalities are just that's just how society is we're inherently racist and that's just how it's going to be but at the same time we have these ebbs and flows right we have moments in time where everything seems like it's okay on on the war episode of the podcast um michael kluckner was talking about how sometimes wars are actually what bring people together and when you have too long where you're at peace people start infighting more so do you think that what we're experiencing now is just sort of a continuation of a racist society? Or do you think that we're entering into some sort of new era and, and, and there's some sort of difference that we need to call out here? Yeah. I, oh, my gosh. That is such a great question and, and such a great topic that we can dive deep into. But I think what I see from a macro level, one of the books I love reading is Ray Dalio. He talks about the changing world order and he talks about how when there is a rise in separation between those, the haves and the have nots, there's inherently a societal tension that's happening. And we're seeing this, like we absolutely seeing this. You're seeing this with the increased number of strikes, increased number of union unionization like we're seeing in the united states we're seeing that from the, the trucker protests from the rise in anti-asian hate even what's happening now when you have this split of society of those who have you know have the money and those who don't there is an inherent tension that happens domestically speaking mm. and so that that it, it's a cycle of history it, it happens over and over and over and over again we see this all throughout and so the natural question is like okay now what? How do we address it? Right? How do we how do we fix this? How do we ensure that this doesn't repeat? I think what's different now 
than before is that this technology advances are incredible. You and I were just rifting before the podcast about now there's AI. The word AI wasn't even a word like eight months ago, right? It's not where it is now. And so now with these kind of platforms to share messages and share about how can we help each other out? You know, there's abundance in this world. How can we create the society that people have this inherent love for each other? That's kind of where the magic can lie. So I think there is an opportunity, but at the same time, I, I cannot be blind to the fact that this is happening. And I think one of the things that, if I could rift on this a little bit, you know, before my dad passed two years ago because of cancer, one of the things he shared with me is this notion, and it's in Vietnamese, it's called biết trước, which, which translates to know first. And what that means is that when you know what's happening down the pipeline, you can quickly adapt. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that if we understand that this is, happens throughout society and history, we could better adapt. Right? We could find ways to either mitigate it, to talk about it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this is happening. And we're at this, what we call, fourth turning in society. And mm-hmm. so, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm curious. I think it's a great question. I don't think there's an easy answer, but I think this is happening. And it's good that we all know about it. I mean, it sounds like you're saying that one of the big issues is wealth inequity. And we've done a podcast on wealth inequity. We've done, a, a like I said, a, a technology podcast. And I'm curious about how AI and wealth inequity go together and what your thoughts are having a tech background around whether AI is going to be a way of leveling the playing field among people or whether it's just going to increase that wealth inequity. You honed it in perfectly. Wealth inequity, is actually, that, that, that's exactly the crux of it, right? I think Andrew Yang wasn't that off a couple of years ago when he ran for president. So Andrew Yang, he was a presidential nominee a couple of years ago and he advocated having, um, I think inflation checks or freedom checks where everyone gets a thousand dollars, right? Mm. Regardless of where you are. And I think this is starting to be it because with the advent of technology like AI, with other technologies, you're gonna see, you know, the typical work is gonna be less, right? And so how do citizens share in the benefits and the rewards of this? And I'm not saying that, you know, we should tax the rich or like tax these companies because that's gonna end up driving these companies away from Canada and actually has a downstream effect because you lose that tax base. And we're going deep into economics because I love this topic as well too. But at the end of the day, I think a solution to this is that how do we share in the wealth? And I think honestly, one great idea is these quote unquote freedom checks or inflation checks mm-hmm. as a way to kind of mitigate. And I think, you know, I think there's, 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 there's opposite sides to this. One could say if you're giving money to the populace, that'll actually drive up inflation. People have more money to spend. At the end of the day, there is wealth inequity. And so how do we address it? How do we fix it? Right. And I mean, I want to touch on that point about how if, if you do start taxing these companies more, they're going to move elsewhere. And at the same time, if you don't tax companies, then you don't have money to distribute for social welfare type of programs, right? So how, how do you balance that, right? You, you would think... Well, if, if people aren't working as much, AI is taking over, robots are taking over, we need to be able to tax those robots, that AI, in order to use that money to give to the people who've lost their jobs to those robots, or are people losing jobs? And I think, you know, there, there may not be an answer in this, but um, what, what are your thoughts around how, if we're not overtaxing companies, how we're going to help support people who, who live locally? Yeah, I think it's a beautiful question. I, I think there's this inherent tension, right? This yin and yang tying back to, you know, the, my Asian background, right? This yin and yang between taxing companies and helping society. We've seen this all throughout history with like Robin Hood, right? Tax the rich, give it back to the poor. I think there's many ways of framing it, right? I think at the end of the day, I think 
companies want to be in Canada and the United States because they see this as an opportunity to grow and develop. We're actually seeing, there's a most recent article, I think Wall Street Journal, talks about how there's actually been an influx of tech workers in Canada from the United States because the U.S. now has this really strict visa policy. So you're seeing next level talent coming into Canada mm. and creating families and developing a, a society that's... Vancouver, if you don't know, secretly is a hub. There's so much talent in the city mm -hmm. because quite often it's because people can't get visas to work in the United States. So they all work here in Vancouver, right, for these big tech companies. Mm -hmm. And they're contributing back to the community. Their kids are going to school here, paying taxes, etc. So I think there's a happy medium here, right? I think there's an inherent tension, trade-offs. It's kind of where it's tough to be a politician, to be honest, <laughs> right? But there is an inherent tension here. And I think at the end of the day, we want to be in a place where we feel seen cared heard about and i think if it's tax all these companies you're going to drive away the tax base at the same time i think there is a a balance a medium here and i think it's about figuring it out right and it, it sounds like you're saying too that we're not necessarily going to be losing jobs to robots and ai they're going to be assisting us in in other ways and creating new jobs perhaps absolutely right mm -hmm. like it's I, i'm so excited for the future right i Think about the advent of even Uber Eats, right? Let's just use. I, I don't know why I'm thinking about food right now, but whatever the case, <laughs> clearly, <hungry. laughs> clearly need to eat something. Uh, but you think about this technology now; it's created a whole like gig worker economy. People can just like work, you know, for two hours on a weekend, mm -hmm. right? And that's enabled a lot of openings in in jobs. So I think technology it actually creates opportunities. It, it, it does cause us to kind of shift our learnings and our priorities, but I think. It creates economies, it creates jobs, it creates this, this, this abundance that we can all live with. Right. And we kind of, I guess, need to be more open to being fluid because as the technology progresses, the world is changing more quickly every year, it seems, right? And we have to figure out how we're going to adapt. And I guess that kind of brings me to the next question, which is what our audience can do to help. So when it comes to any of these issues that we've talked about today, or all of the issues, what do you think our audience can do to help give back and make the world a better place? Yeah, I have two things to, 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 to highlight for the audience. I think on the theme of racism and hate, if you do see an incident, speak up, right? Mm -hmm. Either you call it out to the perpetrator, or if you don't feel safe, talk to the victim afterwards. Hey, you know, I saw this happen to you and that's not right. Mm -hmm. Because myself as a victim, people have said that to me and it's actually made my day tremendously better. And so when you see a racist incident, either you call it up by reporting it or like addressing the perpetrator, or if you don't feel safe, talk to the victim. Say, hey, I saw that happen to you. That's not right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the, that's the first thing. I think the, the second takeaway after you listen to the podcast is really find a way to express a small act of kindness. Mm -hmm. And I think... Nowadays, this small act could actually be a, seen as a big act. Even small things from like opening the door for somebody or like waving someone when they were to like, merge into your lane or whether it's like buying a coffee for someone beside you or just sending a friendly note. I think if we all do this one act of kindness, the world would be a completely different, better place. So I think those are the two things I note. If you see racism, call it out. If you can, express some kind of note of kindness to a friend, to a stranger, to a family member, and that'll be a game changer, to be honest. Right. And I mean, one of the things that's coming to mind as you're talking about the need to address anti-Asian hate, and we've just talked about technology, we've talked about China, I'm kind of bringing all of these together and wondering if there's 
another way to, to deal with this, right? I mean, in, in China, there's these massive technology advances that have allowed the government to monitor their civilians for better or for worse. That's something that I would imagine is coming here maybe in a different way. But if you have cameras everywhere and you have AI communicating, there's potentially a way to monitor hate crimes virtually and, and report back without any r real human involvement. Is that a future that you would like to see or is that sort of a dystopian nightmare? Yeah, I, I would lean toward dystopian a little bit just because, you know, we all grew up reading 1984 in high school and having monitors. But I think there's a way to use technology for good. Right? An easy way of doing that is really using AI and, and voice recognition and just to translate. And so imagine one future day where my mom can call this phone line. It's picked up right away and she expresses what happened whatever she wants to say in Chinese, that's automatically translated in English and sent to the nearest police officer. Mm -hmm. Like something simple like that could be a game changer. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, my mom would have to call the phone line, no one picks up, and someone picks up, they don't understand what she's saying, right? I think now we, we have, the technology is there, right? Where mm -hmm. she could actually just say what she wants to say in Cantonese and automatically transcribe in English in voice and in text. And so as a police officer, I could read that and I know what to do. And so the technology is actually already there. And mm. so how do we incorporate technology into our current systems and our current processes? Mm. And, you know, there's always this notion like, okay, it's going to cost too much money. You know, how do we implement this? These are just widgets that we install right away. Mm -hmm. And it'll take like a second year computer science student to do it for less than a thousand dollars. Right. And so I think this is possible. I want to help. And so if you're part of government, you're part of policy, email me, contact me. I'm happy to support this and help lead the way. Mm -hmm. And you, you kind of touched on this before about how this might not be the right place to, to talk about police because we're on a social justice podcast. And I think people are going to have a variety of different opinions, whether it's abolish the police or uh, we love the police or, or somewhere in the middle. Right. But do you think the police is the right mechanism to deal with anti-Asian hate? Oh, I think there's so many mechanisms, right? Police is one system. There's other systems as well, whether it's through the community. You know, at the end of the point, end of the day, for those who do want to report to the police and want to have go down that avenue, I want to offer that ability. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's many ways of approaching it. I uh, very cognizant of the inherent historical uh, issues that underpin, right, with this. And I think the angle that I'm honing in on is that if you actually do want to go down the police route, there should be a way of doing it in a accessible manner and not just forms in Chinese. Right. Like English, French, Japanese, Korean, right? Let's, mm -hmm. let's, let's find a way. And I think the government is currently considering that in its upcoming statute. But at the end of the day, if people want to report to a hotline, there needs to be a mechanism that goes straight to the police if they wish. Mm -hmm. Right now, there isn't. And so I think we got to find a way. Right. And I mean, p police is the tool that exists at the moment. So if it's not functioning well, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with trying to improve that system, whether you think that police should exist or not. I mean, that, that's just what we have at the moment. And, and so that's what we have to work with. And um, we've talked about so many different topics today. It's incredible. I can't think of another episode where we've talked about so many different things. And it's, it's so on brand with the podcast, right? We've talked about every imaginable social issue that I can think of off the top of my head right now. But um, I wanted to put it out to you. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you really want to bring up? I just want to end with a thank you. Like, honestly, thank you to you. Thank you to the listeners. Because this is time out of your day to interview me, time out of your day to listen to this. Because when we come at the end of the day, beyond all this turmoil, all this chaos, if we dive into who we are as souls, as humans, 
it's love and kindness. Like I, I, as cheesy as it sounds, like that's what it is. Like it's seeing each other as humans, as beings. Like I, I have a daughter, like just seeing the joy in her, in her eyes when she plays on the playground with others, right? Mm-hmm. That's who we are as humans. So let's just not forget that. And we find different ways to help. And so I just want to end with saying thank you. Like that, that's, that's really from my bottom of my heart. Thank you for having me sitting here. Thank you for those who are listening because I think we can make a difference. And this, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and thank you for my end as well. I mean, you're putting in all this time to come to the office at the flag shop and sit with me and have this conversation. And I'm so appreciative of that. And, and thank you so much. And this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Berling. I've been here interviewing Stephen No, and I'll catch you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.